stay hungry, stay foolish. Before I launch into today's intro, I just want to thank our sponsor, Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded financial services and products to empower businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. Don't forget, I have a copy of today's book up for grabs. Just sign up for the innovationshow.io newsletter and you will be in the hat to win a copy of today's book. When we work hard, sometimes we put our mental health on the back burner. Stress, a lack of sleep and other factors can quickly lead to burnout. How can we balance our goals with our peaceful lifestyle? Replace stress, burnout and surviving with resilience, energy optimization and thriving. Our guest today offers us a way to do this in a world of rapid change. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of Finding Inner Safety, The Key to Healing, Thriving and Overcoming Burnout, Dr. Narina Ramlikhan. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Aidan. It's, it's such a pleasure to be here today. It's an absolute honor to have you on the show. And I know this isn't your first book as well. And it's a departure from your usual style of book, but we'll get into all that. But I wanted to start first with a little quote that would tee you up and please feel free, Narina, to bring it whichever way you like. Because most of us get stuck in unhelpful pat patterns in our lives, and we don't know a way out. And in this book, you offer us both the tools and a proven methodology to get out, but also you bring us on a journey of why we got there in the first place, and then help us get out of those ruts that many people are stuck in. You say in the book, over the years, people have come to you because they can't sleep. They are exhausted and have no energy. They feel anxious, restless, or they are just plain unhappy. Sometimes they've been signed off work, they've had a breakdown or burnt out. You meet so many people like this when you worked in a psychiatric clinic for over 10 years. But in this book, you offer a solution for that, how to understand why we've got here in the first place and ultimately to offer us a way out. I thought that would be a way to tee you up, maybe to give context to this book and the departure you've taken in this book over your previous ones. Absolutely, Aidan. And you know, this is this book is the one that I wanted to write right at the beginning, but the world wasn't ready for it. And by this sort of magical journey series of synchronicities or whatever you want to call it, I ended up being called a sleep expert. Okay, I studied sleep. For my for my doctorate, I I had sleep problems from a baby up through to my thirties. So sleep was like my golden ticket, but I always knew that it wasn't really about sleep and that the things people were presenting um, with, you know, when I when I worked with them, whether in the psychiatric clinic or in a large auditorium, it wasn't really about sleep. It was about the choices that they were making, which then had an impact on their sleep or their energy or their resilience. So I always wanted to get to the core of it. And but sleep was the the safe ticket, if you like, because, you know, if you ask a an investment banker from Goldman Sachs or Merrill Lynch, you know, tell me how you're feeling. Why are you making this? They're not going to want to talk to you. But if you ask somebody, how are you sleeping? The door is open. We can all talk about that. So I ended up being given these these opportunities to 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 help people through the avenue of sleep and stress as well. We could talk about stress. And something magical started to happen when I could get people to sleep well, um, which is that the sleep has this amazing organizing potential, the process of sleep. And when we start to sleep well and in line with our natural rhythms and physiology, something starts to happen. And often I would see someone who is in a real mess. I mean, a train wreck of a life. And they're keeping going until they stop keeping going, fall off the edge. And then I get working with them. I get them to sleep well. Second session, they come back to me and they go, do you know what? I think I need to change things. I need to, I can't work like this anymore. I can't, I can't run my relationship like this. I need to change these patterns. But when they came to me the first time, we couldn't really get into those patterns because they didn't have the resource or the resilience, or they they just couldn't, they couldn't take that on board. Yeah, and I love what you talk about in the book, because we've heard about the the great resignation, but 
we've talked about this on the show before, Narina, that it's a great awakening as well. And you say so many people are finding the courage to shift and to change. And you say here that they find their voice, they speak up, they refuse to do life the way that it was not helpful anymore. They leave the relationship or challenge the status quo. They leave the job that is unhappy for them, that's draining their energy. They move house or state or country. They ask for help. And ultimately, this is what you call finding safety. The way you see it, you say there are four options. And I'd love you to take us through these, Narina. One is when we're consciously safe. Two is unconsciously safe. Three is consciously unsafe and four is unconsciously unsafe. I'd love you to take us through these again to give us a framework to see what we're dealing with here. Yeah, I'm really glad you reminded me of them. <laughs> the four options. What are these four options? I went into a little bit of unsafety there for a second. No, but I mean, look, when we're when something happens in your life and then you realize that, oh, what the hell has happened? Okay, what, what what's happened? And Look, let me let me just share that I've been there as well. So I'm not sitting here as this guru person who's just got it right. I mean, I have a constant work in progress, to be honest, constantly having to uncover these patterns. So when I, I my life kind of really derailed, if you like, and I'll call it my big biggest awakening in 1995, and I find myself in the psychiatric clinic where, ironically, I end up being headhunted to work years later. I remember sitting there. And saying to my husband at the time, I don't know what's happened to me. Can you bring in all my textbooks? Bring in Leninger, the biochemistry textbook. Bring in Kandel and Schwartz, the, the neuroscience. I want to know what's going on. I was unconsciously unsafe. I didn't realize how bad things were. I didn't realize why I had a psychosis. Because I did not realize what was going on. All I knew is I was making really bad choices. I felt really bad. I didn't even know I was feeling bad. I was just feeling what I was feeling. I thought a lot of the time I was feeling excited. I wasn't. I was afraid a lot of the time. So that's where we get caught in living our lives. And, and the, the irony is that I was doing really well. And I see a lot of people like this who on one level are doing really well and they're achieving. And, you know, they're at the top of their game in the organization. They could be the, the CEO of the organization, you know. And I worked ye yesterday with a financial institution where the head of the organization was struggling. And he admitted it in front of everyone. It was beautiful. But on one hand, he's just doing amazing stuff. On the other hand, he's he's kind of crumbling. So there was an, a moment of realization I noticed with him when I stood there on that stage and I said, do you realize dot, dot, dot? And he goes, something landed. So that was, he went from unconsciously safe, unsafe, unconsciously unsafe to suddenly consciously unsafe. Consciously unsafe is, oh, geez, right, okay. I need to do something about this. Now, when I went through that in 1995, it took me four years of dipping in and out, dancing back and forth between unconscious and conscious, unsafe. Like, oh God, something's not right. I don't know how to make it different. I'm going to stay where I am. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and hope that medication makes it better. It doesn't. Oh, Christ, I need to do something different. And then something happened and I, um, I, I changed up everything. And I went away, I went to Brisbane, I, I changed my life, I walked out of a, an amazing job. And I started allowing myself to feel what I needed to feel. And something started to land in me, I felt pretty awful for a while, because my situation was pretty extreme. And I do work with people, obviously, at the psychiatric clinic, who are extreme, but not everyone goes to that extreme. But I, I felt and then something landed me and I in me and I went, hang on, what's going on right now? I'm actually feeling pretty good. I'm feeling good. That doesn't mean everything in my life is perfect. There's chaos, not just in my personal life, but in the world at large, in the collective. But I actually feel okay. I can, I can deal with this. I'm, I'm coming from a place of resource and resilience. And inside, I feel okay. And I'm not waking up in the morning with that quickening of... Oh my, God. oh, my God. You know, so many people have and so many people have at the moment. So I had moved into consciously safe. And then we go through iterations. It's like a spiral and a crazy chaotic process where life keeps bringing us. OK, you're there. Now deal with this. OK, you've got a toolbox. Now deal with this. Then my sister dies, you know, three years traumatically, suddenly. OK, now deal with this. Oh, really? 
Because I thought after that first awakening, consciously safe, I thought, now I'm enlightened. Now this is it, you know, I've made it. Let's just get out there and show the world what I do. And actually it was when I kind of woke up or hit that point of feeling safe and knowing I was safe that I started being given magical opportunities to help hundreds of thousands of people. I even ended up, you know, doing a bit of TV, radio, ended up working at the psych clinic for 10 years. Um, but my journey has always been ongoing. And then even in the pandemic, I go into the pandemic thinking, wow, this is going to, this is going to shake things up big time. This is going to be tough for a lot of people, but I think I'm going to be okay because I've got lots of tools. And then my big thing happened. It was my daughter getting really ill and a, a huge upheaval, which is now starting to come good, you know, actually as of the last couple of days. You know. Congratulations. Thank you. The teenager is speaking to me again. Awesome. Awesome. But isn't it funny, I, like one of the things that attracted me to the, the book and your work is a, I love a quote, and I mentioned it on a recent show with Dan Millman, that CS Lewis said that the li life sometimes prepares ordinary people for extraordinary events. And what seems like hardships are actually preparing you for a future way. And a life of service like you've done. So you've had to experience those depths in order to be able to articulate them. And as you said, you went into the chaos and you came back with some order that people understand and you've helped people and guide them, etc. And as I mentioned, it's the innovation show. One of the things that we talk about on the show is the constant upheavals that we're going to experience in life. We've seen that we were talking about this during the pandemic saying that this is just going to be one of the many disturbances and disruptions that we're going to experience in life. And my mental model that I use in arena is, it's like a snow globe, that the snow globe gets shaken up every so often, but it will settle again. And if we have the resilience and the tools and with the know how because the tools is one thing, but actually putting them into practice is a different thing like you talk about in the book, then you can deal with the snow everywhere. And you can know that this too shall pass. And I can get through this as well. And this is one of the things I love about your work and indeed what you've shared so magnificently in this book. Thank you. Thank you, Aidan. Yeah, I mean, not only so it's interesting you use the um, the analogy of the snow globe, which is one that I, I talk about as well. But sometimes I say the snow globe gets shattered. Sometimes the snow globe is actually shattered and then you find yourself going, wow, how do I put this? Can I put this back together? And will it come back in a different way? And 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 yeah, I mean, I have had some huge things happen in my life. So I was I, I'm not a great fan of labels. And I think I say this in clinical labels. So when I was in the clinic as a patient, not as a professional, you know, I was diagnosed with bi bipolar and and then recently now that you know trauma is a buzzword now that everyone's using but complex ptsd so my my life has not been an easy one and growing up was pretty difficult and i love my parents for the resilience that they that that, that they they strove for but their lives were not easy my forefathers had really tough lives i mean train wrecks of lives you know so my my great great grandparents went to guyana as indentured slaves and they were in poverty. There were nine, nine of them living in a mud hut. That's what my mum came from. And, you know, they, they lived sometimes on just rice and what they called mar, which is when you boil the rice and it breaks down and it's all it's gloopy and gluey. And um, they would wait for my, my grandfather to come back from fishing all day. But if he came down the road singing, they knew they weren't going to eat because that meant he'd spent the money in the rum shop. That's what they call it in the Caribbean, you know, the rum shop. So they, they came from really tough lives and they did their best. They didn't always get it right. And I do share some of the stories, not all of them. And I loved my father. I love my father, my, my late father, but, you know, he was tough. Life was tough. And some of the stories I don't share in the book, but it, sh it shaped who I am. And it did bring about, I guess, the state that led me to ending up in that hospital in 1995. But I'm going to say this right now, Aidan, which is that I, what woke up in me and led me to safety um, was an emergence of faith. And I don't know how to put it any other way. And I'm going to call it, for me, it's a relationship with God, but it doesn't have to be that for other people. It does, it's, for me, it's not religious. 
it's I was brought up a Hindu, but I went to Catholic convents and Church of England schools and what is you know, it was a bit messy. But for me, it's it's having faith. And for me, my faith can be when I go down to the river to swim, or it can be when I'm in the trees, I feel something that is beyond all of this. And so that has been a huge tool, if I can call it that for me, a huge um anchor stability anchor is to come back to my to this sense of you know what I'm going to emerge from this stronger and better and with more healing potential with greater capacity to help others maybe a better mother maybe a better sister a better daughter you know dog walker whatever <laughs> but there were times even in the last few couple of years where I just thought I'm done I'm really done with this stop stop now I've, I've had enough I can't buy any more snow globes. <laughs> They're smashed everywhere. <laughs> it's filled really hard. I went into some dark places of mm. victimhood of like, I'm just done with it now. Can you make this easier for me now? I deserve it. And then you keep going. I kept going, kept going, kept going. And and getting this book commissioned was a big part of that keeping going. Just like, okay, I've got a deadline. Sit down and write. Think about why you're writing this book. And it, it's dedicated to to both nirvanas, past and present. So my sister, it was called Nirvana. And my daughter is called Maya Nirvana. So it's dedicated to both of them, two of my biggest teachers. Beautiful, beautiful. So let's jump back 20 years again. And um, at this time, you're working in organizations and you're conducting tests on stressed people in organizations, because this will appeal and speak to our audience, Noreen, in particular, because many of them are corporate workers, a lot of them work in change initiatives, which is difficult. It's constantly shaken up, shaken up snow globes, smashed snow globes all over the place. It's difficult work, and it can lead to burnout quite a lot. And you and your fellow physiologists at the time coined a phrase called truncal thickening. And I see this a lot in my work as a consultant, but also as a, an executive coach. Because you were using this term truncal thickening to diplomatically describe the laying down of fat around the midsection of the body, the proverbial plate of armor, which is really important. And you tell us here that research shows that stress causes the elevation in levels of cortisol, which leads to the laying down of abdominal fat and increased blood fats, cholesterol and triglycerides, the body's way of armoring against stress and this is really important for people to understand because your job can be making you sick. You may think that you have an eating problem or as you've identified many times, a sleeping disorder, but you got to look in the roots to see what the root problem is. Yeah. I love that you've honed in on that, the whole truncal thickening thing, because Malcolm and I, he was head of physiology at the time, we used to laugh about it. And we used these horrific calipers to pinch people's the fat at the back of the shoulders and, you know, and these would be people who are young 20s, 30s, but they were laying down fat on the inside and you would, you know, you would take blood and they would spin it down in the centrifuge. Sounds gross, but there would be a layer of fat floating on the top of the plasma because their body was producing fat to protect them, to this armor. So, yeah, I, this is, I started to notice 20 odd years ago, when I was working at this clinic, it was called City Healthcare, eventually it was bought by Bupa. And I started to notice that there was something about the behavior of people in organizations um, that was making them unwell. And I could measure this. So this is not woo-woo stuff. You know, this is not me tuning into people's energy. So this is empirical objective measurement of breathing patterns, spirometry, blood tests, um, looking at what was happening when they were on the bike, doing a dynamic stress test, looking at the ECG trace, as well as talking to them and noticing a quickening that James Gleck, Gleick talks about in his book, Faster, where everyone was walking fast, talking fast, operating fast. Now, this isn't all about technology as the enemy. It was about the way we were responding to technology, so leaned in. You know, there's a book called Lean In, isn't there? And I, I joke that it should be actually it should be leaned back, right? Because people are too leaned in. So everybody was leaning in. Their physiology was trying to keep up. I was measuring it in a laboratory. The impact on feeling safe was that there are two branches to the nervous system. One is to do with survival, fight or flight, cortisol, adrenaline, truncal thickening, keep up, go faster. 
sympathetic nervous system, trauma, threat. And the other is to do with feeling safe, the parasympathetic nervous system, rest, repair, recovery, digestion, immune function, sexual function, sleep. Everyone was running in that mode, you know, survival, sympathetic nervous system, producing cortisol. And I was seeing this, people were coming along and and I saw this yesterday in this organization with this guy who actually is passionate about his work, but he's running his organization and himself in the wrong part of his energy. You know, so feeling safe is about being able to live from the right part of your nervous system. See, it doesn't mean you're not working hard, but you're, you're, you're living, you're truly living. You're allowing yourself to thrive and you're not walking around with this coating around the mill because you think that you're going to get punched in the stomach. And one of the things I uh, triggered for me was the, I, I, I witnessed this as well. I worked in a large bureaucratic organization and, and a couple of things that you talked about in the book, I was like going, that's the language around what I was feeling at the time. One of the things was, I thought people were older than they actually were. I thought people around me were older than I was because they looked older. And this is actually, again, because they're living in fight or flight mode. They were const- they're age quicker and th- their hair goes gray, etc. Their skin sags, everything starts to go under stress. But the other thing that was really important was neuroception because I remember walking in first, and this was at the interview stage, and I remember thinking, there's something odd about here. Maybe maybe the ceiling is too high. The building is weird. I think it would benefit if the roof was dropped down a little bit and the energy was tighter in the room. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's just the environment. But it was actually the fear in the environment. People lived in this stress or worked in this constant environment of stress where they didn't feel safe. It was cover your ass behaviors, sending emails, just just to crystallize what we spoke about, those type of emails that happen in bureaucratic organizations. And this is something that is a real phenomenon that you talk about, that our body can sense its surroundings are not safe, and it's called neuroception. Absolutely. And a lot of this is coming out of the work of people like um, Stephen Porges and Peter Levine's work, who've done a lot of work around somatic medicine, somatic science, um, uh, embodiment work and trauma, the safe, uh, the, the, the science of trauma. But I didn't realize all those years ago, decades ago, that I was also picking up what you were picking up. And I would walk into these glass chrome, expensive buildings in the square mile in the city. And I would feel nauseous. I would feel sick. And because of my upbringing, um, I'm a highly sensitive person as as you are as well. Neuroception is that your your how your body responds to your environment, sights, sounds, smells, and it's constantly at a, a subconscious level sending back messages to tell you safe or not safe, safe or not safe, safe or not safe. And so, you know, I went to a party the night before the last. I walked in. I knew from the minute I got in there I was going to have a good time. It. I just felt it. You know. I felt safe. My body felt like it wanted to be there. And I've gone to other ones where it should have been good and it wasn't. Now we get this in our environments all the time. Of course, I'm sitting in my home at the moment. I feel safe. My dog is there. My cat is there. It's like a farm in here. But, you know, I feel safe. I feel safe right here, right now talking to you. But so many people habituate to a level of unsafety where that becomes the norm. And they then make choices that perpetuate that level of unsafety. And then the body responds to armor them because it goes, okay, you're fighting a war. Let me help you. Let me cover the inside of your blood vessels with fat to protect you from the stress created oxygen free radicals that are going to attack your blood vessels, which is what happens when you're under stress. Let let me protect you by producing more, more, more cholesterol. Let me lay down fat to protect you. So the body is so intelligent. And this is why I love physiology. It's probably why I failed medicine. After a term, I was kicked out. But you know, I the physiology is you constantly, if you ask the question the why, you'll dig down and you'll the body will give you the answer. So neuroception, and of course it shows up with sleep, because if you're walking around all day not feeling safe, you get into bed, even if you're in your safe bed, your your physiology is still carrying the imprint of the day, of the weeks, the months, the years. And as you say in the book, it could be right back to pre your time, it could be in the womb, it could be your grandparents, etc. We'll get into that in a little while. But I do want to stay on the stress mode for a moment. Because 
one of the reasons this is so important to me and for our audience who are kind of going, this show is a bit different from the normal innovation stuff. The reason this is so important, your inner safety, is if the body is in fight or flight mode, blood is diverted to your fists for fight and your feet for flight, you're less intelligent because blood is diverted from your forebrain. So you cannot be intelligent. You cannot be innovative in an organization that is going through organizational fight or flight. So we need people to be safe, feel psychologically safe, but also physically safe, whether that's perceived or otherwise. And that's why I think this work is so important in an organizational sense. But I wanted to bring it back to the time where you devoured all the science, all the books that time in the psychiatric ward, and you continue to do this over the last decade. Because you believe that when we understand what is happening in our bodies, why it is happening, and then importantly, what we can do to navigate our responses to life, this is when we can achieve true life empowerment. And here you introduce the keys to safety science. And I'm going to share a magnificent quote by one of the fathers of psychology, William James that you share in the book, he said, the great thing then in all education is to make our nervous system, our ally instead of our enemy by understanding it is one of the ways to move forward into that. And here you share the three branches of the autonomic nervous system involved in enabling us to stay safe. Perhaps you'll introduce here Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory and the ventral vagus, the sympathetic nervous system and the dorsal vagus. These are important. Again, empowerment comes from understanding and therefore we can actually see the telltale signs in our body and perhaps in our relationships and in our work environments, etc. Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, uh, if, if I had to say I've got a brand, if I, when I'm working, whether it's one-to-one -one or doing an interview like this or working with, I'm a bit worried, you need more water, Aidan. <laughs> I've run out, I've run out again. <laughs> no worries, it's all good, it's all good. Okay, all right, I'm not going to worry for you. I tend to do that. But um, yeah, so wh whether I'm working with huge groups of people or one-to-one, -one, there's, there's a few themes that come through in my work. And one is I want people, I want to give them an, underst an understanding. So I will share with them themes. There'll be physiology in there. There'll be psychology. There will be some philosophy. We can get to that to philosophy. There will be maybe my personal journey. I'll share some of that because I don't want people to think it's all so easy. So I, I tell them stuff. And increasingly, I'm telling people more without wanting to make people uncomfortable. But I share that, you know, I'm not this person who's just got it perfect. And then they'll always be practical. But I feel like you need to go through the intellectual, logical brain of understanding why. And then when you understand, then you can make the changes. And as someone said to me yesterday, I know all this stuff, Dr. Narina, she said, but I can't do all. I said, I know this is really not rocket science, but knowledge is not wisdom. And I believe that what helps us to go from knowledge to wisdom is when we really understand. And I made this transit myself Bef just before the pandemic, when I discovered all this stuff about polyvagal science, because look, I have a degree in, in physiology, I have a PhD in physiology. Stephen Porges' work came out in the 90s when I was at university, but we weren't being told polyvagal, taught polyvagal theory. It's relatively fresh and new out there. And when I discovered it, I think I sat in a state of wonder for probably 48 hours going, Wow, how did I not know this? So what I thought and what I just said to you earlier is we've got two branches to the nervous system, parasympathetic, sympathetic. No, actually, let's go back in time. We have an evolutionary timeline in terms of how the nervous system is has evolved. And if you think about our evolutionary timeline, we first evolved, they were the reptiles who to fight stress, they had to go immobile, they had to freeze. So we still have this part of the nervous system, which is called the dorsal vagus which is the shutdown, numb, freeze, don't make a sound, don't let them know that you're here, close it in, shut down, dorsal vagus. And then as we started to, on the evolutionary time timeline, learn how to amass our resources to fight threats, to build shelter, to build weapons, the sympathetic nervous system evolved. Cortisol, fight, flight. So that's uh, the, the sympathetic, where we produce adrenaline and cortisol, and um, we, we can amass our energy to do something to fight the threat. Okay, so you've got dorsal vagus, 
then you've got the sympathetic nervous system. And then as we learn how to feel more safe and our world started becoming safer in many respects, the ventral vagus then evolved and the brain started to evolve in line with that. We started laying down you know, new layers to the brain, the neocortex, the frontal lobe, where we can think more innovatively, creatively, you know, whole brain thinking. But the ventral vagus is where we thrive, where we feel safe. So we've got dorsal vagus, sympathetic, and ventral, where we feel safe. And I think a lot of people didn't talk about the dorsal vagus and the whole shutting in of stress. And they put a smile. So, so many people, so 150 people in my audience yesterday, this organization, I asked people, how many of you grind your teeth at night? At least half the people will put their hands up. How many of you are going to bed with a mouth guard? Loads of people in the room. So uh, how many of you are holding it in your shoulders, in your belly, IBS? So people are somatizing. Somatizing meaning holding it in the body, making it about the body. They're they're not saying what they want to say because they don't feel safe to say it. So they put a smile on their face and they go, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll, I'll stay here till you know, two o'clock in the morning and get this done. Yeah. And you're going to pay for me to eat pizza at my desk and maybe even bring someone in to massage my shoulders while I do that. But I can't say no, you know. So we still use the dorsal vagus when we feel disempowered and when we shut down the sympathetic, when we can fight, we do it. A lot of people run around in sympathetic nervous system fighting, but then that can only work for so long. And I spend a lot of time talking to people about the, the pressure performance curve. And when you run out of the energy to fight, you collapse into dorsal vagus, and that can show up as adrenal exhaustion, chronic fatigue, all sorts of illnesses where the body has just held that stress in and it's become frozen into the body. And so unfreezing or uh, mobilizing the stress and finding safe ways of releasing it and supporting yourself so you can move into ventral vagus, that is the key. Making different choices, feeling safe to feel what needs to be felt, and it can be decades it could be lifetimes of stress that need to be released and finding a safe way of doing that. Beautifully articulated, beautifully articulated. Great job. And I thought there you meant it may be lifetimes and not your lifetimes. That's a key moment as well. I wanted to share, I don't know if you ever heard about the study that was done with cherry blossoms and rats. Did you hear about this study? Oh, Narina, you're, you're going to love this. Um, so we had Dr. Daniel Amen on the show in the past. I'll send it to you afterwards, this study. Okay. I've written about it several times because it, it tees us up nicely for what you talk about in the book. So what they did was they wanted to show that they wanted to raise the question is, are your fears actually your fears or are they inherited from generations previously? So as you know, well, they take mice or rats because their life cycles are quick and their brain structure is quite similar to ours. And they released the smell of cherry blossom into the cages. And they gave the mice or the rats a mild shock and to associate the smell with the shock and hence create fear. And then the mice had a new batch. So the children, and they just released the smell into the cages and they measured them with fMRI scanners to measure their brain and amygdala in particular, and the amygdala lit up on these batch. And then they did it on the grandchildren and the same thing happened. And it proves that the fears may not be your fears. And we had the great Robert Sapolsky on the show before and he told us, if you came from a region in the world, for example, that had experienced disease in the past, and perhaps you've had family members wiped out, etc., you're going to be more xenophobic as a result of that, because you fear outsiders, you're anti outsider. And this links beautifully to the concept of inheriting fears or inheriting, for example, one of the examples you give is a lady grinding her teeth, and it had nothing to do with her, it had to do with her mother and some unresolved issues there as well, that we can carry these things into the world. And it also intertwines then with another guest we had on the show was Bruce Lipton, the father of epigenetics, as you know, well, and his work as well, that oftentimes these things are, we don't know where they come from, they can happen in the womb, etc. I'd love you to take us through your version of all these different tales, and how we can inherit these fears, and often not know where they even came from. Yeah, well, I mean, I obviously have, found, have experienced this in my own personal life, but then with so many people who I have, have worked with over the years, 
who come from it. And it used to really confuse me until I started really delving into, you know, Bruce Lipton's work, the epigenetics work and, and, and looking at inherited trauma. <clears throat> and because I would, I would work with someone who supposedly has had this amazing life and they're well-resourced and their, their upbringing was great. And, and you almost think there's got to have been something sinister. And then you start looking doing a kind of biographical inquiry and then you discover the pattern where it might have come from this this incident where something was said something was something was experienced in the family line and now it's showing up and why is it showing up now and there's a line that i use in the book which is my friend who says it chris sritaran he says you can only heal i'm paraphrasing when there's a surplus of resources and what if what is happening is we have an emergence of generations and this might be controversial to some people. We have an emergence of generations now where they have the resource. I have resources that my family did, my father and mother didn't have. And they had, res they had resources that their parents didn't have. And what if each generation, and this is the process of evolution, has more resource to heal the sins of the fathers, if you call it that, you know, or the past traumas on the timeline. And I'm seeing a lot of this happening in this great awakening of the pandemic. And I'm going to unashamedly call it that because I'm seeing a lot of people showing up with, I don't know what's happening to me, but I'm experiencing things and I don't know why. And uh, one of the ways last year and the last few years where I, I saw it a lot was people talking about dreams, having bizarre dreams during the pandemic. And I think the, I do a fair amount of media interviews and I was asked, getting asked to comment on dreams a lot with the Sky News, BBC News, why are people having these weird dreams? And the dreams are discovering attics or dens in the house. And this, to me, this spoke of this whole thing of going into these areas in our psyche that we hadn't realized and discovered. Um, and I also came across people who were having conversations with their family because they were spending more time with them. And so they had to. And they were discovering things that had happened in family. They were getting to understand their lineage and who they were. And this was coming up for healing. And so a lot of this, you know, the feeling safe is about being able to acknowledge that actually some of this may not be yours, but then it's still there because as Peter Levine and Stephen Porges would say, it's embodied. It's in the body keeps the score. Bessel van der Kirk, the body keeps the score. Those feelings are still the, the cherry blossom fear is in the cells, is in the DNA. So what do you do? So you start to find safe ways of meeting those feelings. And I believe my work has led me to believe that there are some unusual ways of meeting that fear that go beyond sitting in a therapy room with a therapist, right? And this is where my work might differ from the, the work of some of the, the main the leading therapists in the trauma world, Deb Starner. I don't know. She, she's written a book recently, I think called Anchoring or Anchorage. But I believe that some of our trauma and that, that stuff that's not ours, the, you know, the stuff we've inherited can be healed by making the choices that enable us to align our physiology, get the sleep we need. I think healing happens when we sleep well. I also think healing happens when we get out into nature and not be on our phones posting that we're in nature. <laughs> You know, so and for me, the last three years, I started doing some unusual things. I started climbing trees. I started going down to the river near my house and people would walk past going, aren't you worried about the sewage? What, isn't it cold? I'm in there in my swimsuit and it's two degrees and it's snowing. And I'm just like, I want to say I'm rebuilding my snow globe, actually. Yeah. You know, but there was, a, there was a remarkable healing that started to happen when I was doing things like this. Nature was healing me. Sleep was healing me. They did, a lot, did lots of other things, but you know, I hope I've answered your question. I think I've oh, beautifully, and you've teed us up beautifully because I, I also believe the nature. We've got more in touch with nature during the pandemic because, again, and those dreams you mentioned for people. I think that one of the reasons we're seeing the great resignation or great awakening is because people weren't numbed by busyness they had time to think they had time to reflect and kind of go, Hey, 
my boss is a jackass. <laughs> what am I working in this place for? Why am I killing myself for an organization who obviously doesn't care about me? Or it might be stuff like you mentioned, and I've had this experience where I talked to my parents about things that I that emerged for me. And it was almost like healing the family tree. And, and I specifically picked that word family tree, because this is a huge part of your work. I people who know me and know my writing will know I love metaphors. And you go beyond the metaphor here, because trees for you have a magnificent significance. And I'd love you to take us through this, ultimately culminating with the amazing story of the tree in Kew Gardens, which I just absolutely love. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we would joke probably pre, pre-pandemic about tree huggers and, you know, people walking barefoot in soil and stuff like that. And I was, I've always done that kind of stuff. Well, it's certainly since my awakening myself. But even as a child, that was one of the saving graces for me. I spent seven years in Guyana between the age of seven and 14. We had mango trees, guava trees, you know, all these sorts of things. I would climb them and I'd get told off by my mother, girls don't climb trees. But I had this affinity with nature and, and trees. And then I forgot all of that of that when I came back here and years of being more academic and in my head. Um, but then I always liked, you know, I enjoyed being in nature, but something happened during the pandemic and I was spending more time on my own. And of course, like many other people, I got a pandemic pup. I rescued a puppy from Cyprus. So my dog would take me on these journeys and I've lived where I live in Surrey for years, but I would suddenly discover trails and we would go off into places that she wanted to go off into because she arrived to me in a state of trauma. She was living on the streets and they said, don't take her off the lead. And I said, I feel thinking about this. I think she wants to be off the lead. They said, she'll never come back. I said, no, she, she knows where she's getting her next bone from. So I let her off the lead. She shot off. I followed. She starts taking me to these amazing trees. And I find that the tree hugging that I've always had innate you know, affinity with trees really switches on. But not only that, but I emerge from these adventures into the trails and things, feeling better, feeling settled. Because my, my journey during the pandemic was healing a lot of abandonment. And, you know, because of various things, my mother had to leave when I was young for her own safety and survival. Then my, my sister dying, then marriages ending, and then my daughter leaving during the pandemic. There was lots. And it all came up for healing the family tree. But I'd find I'd go out there and something would happen. And I would stop abandoning myself. I would reclaim something of myself going out into nature. And I thought, okay, let, let me look at what's happening here and study the effects of, you know, of being out in nature on your physiology, the lowering of, lowering of blood pressure, the lowering of cortisol levels. When you spend time in nature and you walk, you know, on bare soil and looked at the book Earthing and things like that. And I thought, yeah, yeah, okay. And then my friend came over one day and she was chatting, you know, and then all of a sudden she starts talking about Kew Gardens and this amazing tree and the story. I said, wait, 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 stop, rewind. Tell me the story again. So she tells me the story of the Turner Oak and the tears start flowing. She thinks I'm insane. And what's <laughs> going on with you? So I try to hurry her out of the house because you know, I just want to look at the Turner Oak story. I want to do a bit of investigating. So she told me the story of the tree, one of the oldest trees in Kew Gardens that um, was uprooted during the storms in the 1980s. And I remember the storms well. I slept through it. I was having a good night's sleep that night. Um, and I, I slept through it, but I remember waking up the next day and there were all these trees that had fallen and, and everything. And the Turner Oak was uprooted. And, you know, they were heartbroken at Kew Gardens, the arborists, arborists because it was the oldest tree, it was the biggest tree. So what they did was they they kind of left it there for a while and they went around salvaging all the other trees and they thought, there's no point doing anything, it's, it's dead now. Um, but they came to it eventually and they propped it up. We'll get to it eventually, we're going to have to cut it all down. And um, I think it was five years before they got to the Turner Oak. And when they got to the Turner Oak, they re realised that it had been in the uprooting and the, the, the propping up, it had rerooted. And in the uprooting, it had, the upheaval had increased the porosity of the soil, which had, before the uprooting, had become worn down by the footfall, just downtrodden, literally downtrodden, as so many people can end up in organizations, or we can end up downtrodden by life. And then we have a great awakening or a great resignation or a great uprooting. 
and we're, we're torn from our moorings. And then people come to me and I help prop them up with the sleep or the whatever. I'm mixing all these stories now. I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> your listeners are still with me. But we prop ourselves up. But because we've managed to aerate our soil, I teach them how to breathe. I teach them to put some hydration into the soil. I, I teach them to put their roots down deeper and they start healing those weakened roots and then they start to thrive. And nature is so clever. And this, I thought this story has to be in the book. This is the, the middle of the book. This is the central theme of the book that holds it together. And I didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah. And um, and it was when I was out walking, there was one, one tree and I call it the dancing tree. And its branches had been cut and it's just sort of standing there looking like it's dancing. And I took this photo and I was standing there looking at it. In fact, I didn't take a photo. I just stood there because I never have my phone when I'm out walking. I was standing there looking at it and I felt like this tree was saying, you need to dance with the trees and this needs to be in the book. So I included, included all the stuff about trees and I thought it was going to be edited out. And, it <laughs> and they came back and they like, they sent the first draft of edit. edit I was like, have they left the trees? Oh my goodness. And not only that, they want a picture. They want a photo of the dancing tree. Beautiful. And Beautiful. so it ended up being the central theme in this book. Um, and I believe that where we've come to this point now in human evolution, where we need to have the faith and dig deeper and find the safety to go in and heal those roots. And, you know, the conversation I had with my teenager this morning, which is so serendipitous because it's my birthday today. So she, she just said, I just want you to know I love you, mom. And I'm feeling so much better. And I haven't said, well, you know, I've been healing those wicked roots so you don't have to. But it's been some of that going on. Wonderful. And first, a happy birthday. I meant to say that to you. I was going to finish on that, but I just don't want to appear rude to our audience as well. But I, I had noted that it was your birthday and we moved the show early so you can have your soiree as well. But I, I loved the story of the Turner Oak for many reasons. One is one of the, it may sound weird to our audience, but one of the, the parts of my courses that I run in, as workshops is called Kintsugi thinking. And Kintsugi, as you know, is the Japanese art of of celebrating the cracks that we all have. And that's what that story spoke to me. But then you enhanced it even further, because th there was a quote in the book that not only describes the vulnerability of reinvention when we go through, oh, that's your door. Are you all right? Well, I'll, okay? I'll start it again. Yeah, of course. Okay, no, quickly, because I think it's probably uh, an Amazon. Or Amazon, yeah, yeah, go oh, for it. Oh, <laughs> Another book. Uh, well, <laughs> there's one book in there, but there's also... A birthday present. Yeah, birthday present, flowers. It wasn't me, by the way, Narina. Oh, flowers arrived. I'm not that good. <laughs> Sorry. But uh, I, I was saying that I loved the story of the Turner Oak because it suggests the what appears to be a crisis sometimes unlocks us. And you, we heard this about fire, forest fires, for example, that some trees need forest fires to unlock their seeds to, you know, to protect against the apparent crisis. And along comes humanity, and we try to intervene, and we actually ruin the forest as a result. But there was a quote in the book that emphasized the messy middle that you go through when you're reinventing when you're going through these crises, and you're healing from them, etc. Because in there can be the unlocking of a new you. And the quote that I love that you share in the book comes from Gail Sheehy, with each passage of human growth, we must shed a protective structure, just like the tree that undergoes the forest fire, we are left exposed and vulnerable, but also yeasty and embryonic again, like a newborn capable of stretching in ways we had not known before. I absolutely loved that. And I thought this would be a nice way to tee up perhaps just a quick at a high level, the tools, the seven to day, 10 day program that you propose from your earlier books as well, because you've highlighted this in the past, you've talked about this in your media appearances, and they are actionable for all of us. This is not rocket science for us to in, engage with. And some of them are surprising for me, for example, eating within 45 minutes, I do intermittent fasting, I find it useful for me. But I was intrigued by Oh, maybe, maybe it's having a knock on effect later on in my day that I can't identify what that's coming from, etc. But I'd love you to share these. Okay, great. I'm so glad you asked that because, you know, there, there are some tools which take people really deep 
in the t- in the resources section of the book. But there are also some like, what do we do now? What can I do now? And I'd love to give people that. And I also know that it works and it worked for me all those years ago. So it's tried and tested, my unique me- methodology. So I call them slightly bullishly my five non-negotiables, right? Because these are the five things which I've seen time and time again will make a difference because they bring about that, re- that recalibration from unsafe to safe. And they give people the energy and the resources to then go and do the deeper work of finding the inner safety, the deepest levels of inner safety. So what do you do? What do you do, your listeners? Number one, ideally eat breakfast within about 45 minutes of rising. If you are waking up with anxiety, if you are feeling so leaned in, if you're feeling so stretched, you're feeling so hopeless, if you're feeling suicidal, like a victim, filled with shame, all of these things I talk about in the book. If you're feeling horrid, you start by eating breakfast because it's telling the hunter-gatherer brain you're living in a world that is safe. Now, if you're waking up in a state of great sense of aromatherapy-scented bliss and safety, then do intermittent fasting. I used to do that. And then a year and a half into the pandemic, when I started feeling really bad, um, and had some tests done, realized that my adrenals were going, you're doing too much. This I was supporting a lot of people as well as dealing with my personal stuff as well. So I had to start eating in the mornings. So eat within 45 minutes of rising. Ideally, something that has protein, fat, and carbohydrate in there. Don't intermittent fast if you are carrying any, any stress symptoms and you're not sleeping well. Okay. Do not use caffeine as a substitute for food. Eat first and then have your amazing cup of Darjeeling. This is just hot water, but I had my amazing Darjeeling before I spoke to you, but I had eaten a huge amount before that. No caffeine after three o'clock in the afternoon. Number three, hydrate, alkalize the cells in the body. So one of the things that happens when we are stressed, um, when we're processing illnesses, when we're recovering from viruses, when the brain's going at 100 miles an hour, is that we feel a lot of dehydration, like that Turner Oak was dehydrated. The soil, the roots were so shallow, they couldn't, they'd had nothing to drink. And so that can cause the toppling, you know? So get that liquid in, alkalize it, put a pinch of sea salt. I use a mixture of, I have a third coconut water, half a teaspoon of, a quarter of a teaspoon of natural sea salt, and then hot water. And that's the drink that I have while I'm feeding the animals. Um, And then I eat after that. I then meditate for a short meditation, then I eat you know, um, and the fourth one is start getting to bed earlier, you know, and that's something that shifted as a lot during the pandemic as people are going to bed later, they're waking up later because they weren't working to a organizational timetable or commuting. And we're missing out on that vital, uh, intelligent phase of sleep before midnight that starts to organize your physiology and set you up for amazing sleep throughout the night. So get to bed earlier, three or four nights a week around 930 Tennish, be in bed, reading, ideally on a, on a paper book, practicing meditation, journaling, doing a gratitude practice. But this is my fifth one. Can we please cultivate a healthier relationship with these? Please. So we've become so wedded to these things. These things have, they, they're amazing. I love my phone, although this one is a bit dodgy. So I lost a brand new iPhone 12 during the pandemic. Why? Because I started taking my phone out with me. What happened? I dropped it in the river. While Richard reading Richard Powers' book, Overstory About Nature, I heard the sound nature, and then I heard glug, glug, glug. I dropped my phone into the river. There you go. So that was a metaphor. And now this one makes a noise like a duck because I've dropped it as well. We need to, the universe was telling me, cultivate a healthier relationship with technology. That's number five. Don't have your phone in the bedroom. Get out for walks. Don't take your phone with you. You don't need to post about it. Take time away from your phone. Sit with your family. Don't have your phone. Watch TV. Don't be on your phone. Don't let your phone be the first thing you look at in the morning. The last thing you touch before you turn your bedside light out. And, you know, if there's one thing that people also do, I know that's the five non-negotiables, but meet yourself first thing in the morning. Start living life from inside out rather than outside in. Now, some people might think this is controversial and I don't care, but I think we went into this pandemic perfectly set up to catch viruses because we were running in the sympathetic nervous system for two decades before the pandemic hit. 
So we had shut down the immune system in the parasympathetic, parasympathetic. And a lot of that was because of the way we were responding to life from outside in. So that was like, okay, you wake up. You don't want to listen to the mad voice in your head. You don't want to listen to the anxiety in the belly. Let me just look at my phone. Who loves me? What's happening in the news? What are the share prices? What, what, what's going on out there? What's in my inbox? Outside in. So I recommend put that away, switch it off, have it charging somewhere else in your living space. Get a clock in the room. When you wake up in the morning, meet yourself with three breaths. What's going on for me right now? What's going on? And accept that there are days where even though I have never felt safer than I feel today, I have never felt safer in my entire life than I do now. Yesterday morning, I had an inkling of a little ripple of because I knew I was doing my first in-person gig. I was going, CEO, whole organization, got to travel, got to get on a train, got to be there this time. And the inbox is doing this. And I've got to post it on social media and the book's coming out tomorrow. And this was going. I'm feeling safe, but my physiology was behaving unsafe. So what did I do? I made choices from that realization. Okay, today I really need to get the breakfast right. Let me just breathe for five minutes before I get out of bed. I will make time for that dog walk, which I said was going to be a short one. I'm going to go for longer. And maybe I will hug a tree or two because today I'm, there's a potential to swing this way. And I don't want that today. So I did. And I had an amazing day. And you're so well set up for your birthday. You feel safer than ever before. Your books come out on your birthday. And I hope this interview has been a positive experience as well for you. It's been well a blessing. And Narina, I'm, I have a final quote I pulled from the book. It's a practice I have on the show. I'm going to share that. But before I do, I wanted to, to ask you to close today's show. But before I share the quote, so I'll share the quote. I wanted to ask you, Firstly, where can people find you if they're interested in your work, the book, etc.? Where Where is your resource that people can find you the most? Right. So I'm on all the social media things at Dr. Narina, at D-R Narina, N-E-R-I-N-A. And all of my books, there's four of them. The first three are predominantly around sleep. Um, those are on Amazon, including the, the, this one, Finding Inner Safety. So well, just Google Dr. Narina Sleep. I'm hoping that one day people will Google Dr. Narina safety and that's when I'll be at the top of the top of the, the internet search. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite findable. And, and don't expect an immediate response. That's for sure. You might be out walking in nature, or <laughs> climbing up a tree and that's, and that's perfectly okay as well. So I, I'm going to share the final quote, and then I'll hand over to you to share your final message for our audience. Again, CEOs of organizations, C-suites leaders, change makers, or just interested people, curious people in life. The quote that I picked from the book that I absolutely loved by you goes as follows. Spiritual safety is the ultimate safety level. This is when you trust the process of life. Even when things are going wrong, you have faith that you will be okay. You were able to connect with something beyond yourself, and this calms, reassures, and bolsters you. I know what is important to me, what I value, and I am committed to living my life according to these values, even if this sometimes causes me personal sacrifice. I can rise above the messiness of a situation and see the learning in it for me as a gift. I can see the why. I absolutely love that as a quote that I selected to close for me today. But what's your final message, Norena? Thank you. Thank you. This has been the most glorious interview I have ever done, I'd have to say. I'm, I'm telling you, I've done a lot of interviews as well. It's been absolutely amazing. Thank you, Aidan. But can I just say to you, to your, I know you know this, but to your listeners, you deserve to thrive. You deserve to feel safe in a world that is chaotic, in life that can feel messy and very uncertain. You deserve to thrive and feel safe, and it is possible. So this book is my um, my blessing to you. It's, it's my hope that by reading my book, you will find that too, as I have done. And as I'm hoping, my forefathers are cheering me on because I'm hoping I've done this for the, for the whole family tree and the whole line, including those to come as well. But you deserve it. So don't tell yourself, I've got X, Y, and Z going on. I can't thrive. You've got X, Y, and Z going on. Therefore, you deserve to thrive. You deserve. And by the way, thriving, what does that mean? It means you feel joyful. It means you feel playful. 
It means that you might be 85, but you look 55. I'm not 85, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Author of Finding Inner Safety, The Key to Healing, Thriving and Overcoming Burnout, Dr. Narina Ramlikan. Happy birthday. Thank you, Aidan. I just want to thank our sponsor, Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded financial services and products to empower businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com. Don't forget, I have a copy of today's book up for grabs. Just sign up for the innovationshow.io newsletter and you will be in the hat to win a copy of today's book.